I'm Carrie. And I'm Amy. Carrie sounding very enthusiastic today. And you are listening to The Perks of Being a Book Lover, a show hosted by two book nerd friends who talk to other book nerds, including authors, poets, librarians, booksellers, and regular readers. Our show follows this format. <laughs> we begin with my crabby dullness, which is still in full effect today, and Amy's sometimes maddening enthusiasm. It took us a little bit of time to become self-aware and recognize that we embody the grumpy sunshine trope that we often see in literature. That is followed by a fun conversation with a new bookish friend about what they love about being a bookworm. Then we talk about what we're reading, and finally, we put our guest on the hot seat to answer some silly probing questions. We're glad you've joined us. We saw this week's guest in early fall at Carmichael's Bookstore when she read aloud from her latest book, Don't Call Me a Hurricane. Ellen Hagen has roots in Kentucky and is part of Spalding University's low residency faculty, but lives and works in New York City. She's a poet, fiction writer, performer, and teacher for several programs, including the Dream Yard Project and the International Poetry Exchange Program, which are geared towards young people. She's also the author of many books for teens, including Watch Us Rise, a book she wrote in collaboration with Renee Watson. Don't Call Me a Hurricane is a YA novel written in verse that addresses climate change, romantic family and friend relationships, as well as the tension between tourism and ecology. But first, Carrie, we had a very exciting and exhausting weekend. We did. Well, we were talking to a lot of people, and that makes me very, very, very tired. So we, we were lucky enough to be invited by the Louisville Book Festival to come and participate by pulling authors who were there to present and to sell their books and to talk to readers, to pull them aside and do little mini interviews with them um, that were on Instagram Live. You can still see some of them on our Instagram feed that I have saved. It was it was really fun talking to all these authors. Many of them were regional, but there were some from around the country, and every one of them had a very interesting story about uh, how their book came to be. But it was a learning curve for us, because Instagram Live is not something that we have ever done. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) I was beginning to think you weren't there. I'm here. I'm here. I'm I'm just working up the energy. Well, Well, I have to say, Amy, I'm very proud of you, because... Friday, I had to teach. I taught most of my classes, but cut out a little bit early. And so you and our third in command, we we wrote our favorite bookseller, Sam Miller from Carmichael's in to help you on Friday. So you all were having to figure out Instagram Live. I'm sort of glad I wasn't there for that because, you know, I know how you can be with technology. I, I feel like of, of the two of us, I'm maybe a little more comfortable with technology than you are. So I'm a little bit glad that I, that by the time I got there, you had sort of figured it out, although everybody on Friday was sideways. <laughs> that is true. So you got to start somewhere, right? That's true. That's true. So the way we had it set up on Friday, in order to get everybody in the screen, we had to put it sideways. And I thought that I would be able to, you know, rotate it once I posted it, you know, I, I'd be able to edit it. That was not really the case. Apparently, you cannot really do that on Instagram without downloading a separate app of which would require too much of my mental energy to research how to do. (laughs) So I apologize to all those authors who we interviewed on Friday because you were sideways. 
they can turn their phones. They you know? can. It takes a lot less energy to turn your phone than to me for me to figure out how to make it right. Yeah. I mean, you would still be working on that, I think. Had you had you tried to do it on Friday, you'd still be you'd still be tinkering around with that uh, downloading and and figuring out how to use that. So then we put some more thought into it so that by Saturday, we decided to go with a different uh, setup. It was more of a between the ferns kind of look, (laughs) (laughs) except for that, even with that, we had to be super close. So all these poor authors had to make friends with us. Yeah. Like were, we were all up in their business, is yeah. really, and they were all up in our business. So. <laughs> this was the first ever Louisville Book Festival um, in, well, in person. Yeah, right. They'd had it the two years prior virtual. This is the first one in person, and I think that a lot of good things uh, happened at the Louisville Book Festival. Uh, and of course, you know, it being the first, it has lots of room to change and to grow. And, you know, it, there was a lot of figuring out, at least for us, a lot of figuring out. So, you know, if we do this again, hopefully they'll ask us to do it again, we'll have a better plan in place. But we just didn't really know what to expect. And it wasn't something that we normally do. I mean, as far as the technology piece of it goes. And honestly, the last time we did something sort of like out and in the community, was over three years ago it or was. something. Yes. So I don't know. I think we forgot how to do stuff at, that requires us to be sort of out in the public eye. So anyway, but it was fun. We had a good time. And, and that was the most important thing, I think. Now, one of the dangers of doing this is that by talking to all these authors, we, of course, came away with books that we wanted to buy because it sounded so interesting to us. So I came away with four books. You came away with four books. We strategically planned it a little bit because some of the books overlapped. And so you bought some and then I bought some and we're going to share. And I know there's at least one book I'm going to share with Sam Miller because I know that she was interested in it too. Cool. A book about the presidents, these essays oh. about presidents that were kind of funny. So we posted, oh, that was another thing. Another technology first for me. I posted an Instagram reel. <laughs> I said I would never do a reel because again, it's technology that I just don't want to have to think about. But I did do a reel. Mine was not that great. But then by the time I did yours, it was a little bit better. Friday opened up a whole avenue of new technology experiences for you that who knows? I mean, you will probably be, you'll start making videos where you, you know, you change your face and you're singing and dancing. (laughs) Who knows what may happen? (laughs) Who knows? Oh God, I hope that that's not the case. Me too. (laughs) I hope that that's not the case too. (laughs) Because if you think I'm snarky now, (laughs) I'll be, I'll be making fun of you. I'll just say it. I will just make fun of you to your face and be like, why are you doing that? I did find making the reel kind of fun. Now, I did nothing complicated. I mean, it was really just filming something and adding the music to it. That's all. So basically what I did is I did two reels. One was a reel of the books that I bought at the Louisville Book Festival. And one was a reel of the books you bought at Mm -hmm. the Louisville Book Festival. And we each picked our own music. Mm -hmm. And it's funny, if you look at the music, it kind of is a little bit like our personalities. Mine is this like really upbeat, catchy tune, you know, a little bit jazz. Yours is, it's almost, it reminded me like something from the fifties or, you know, like something you'd listen to at, at the soda shop. (laughs) That's what it reminded me of. And yours was the sort of, I mean, it's, it was a U2 song and actually U2 is one of my favorite bands, but it's more of like a hard driving beat. It was desire, you know, Mm -hmm. 
you know, it's it's a little bit our personalities. Okay, so I think it the song maybe yeah, Shirley Ellis. Let me see if I can figure out when this uh I need it. Yeah. I want it. I love it or something like that. Yeah. You know, it's like a peppy jazzy. It's mm-hmm. it's peppy. It definitely has that Amy feel about it. And <laughs> you were bopping around and singing and I'm like, eh, you too, there, desire. That's good. Do it. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway thank you to the louisville book festival for including us in your event and i look forward to more although i hope that in the future they will have the kentucky book festival and the louisville book festival on separate weekends because you wanted to go to both is what i you're wanted saying. to go to both i did i did <laughs> I haven't mentioned this to you yet, Carrie, but there is a book festival in Cincinnati going on in three weeks. Mm. Books by the Banks. That's it. Books by the Banks in Cincinnati. I've heard that's a really nice book fair. I might see if I can get you to go up with me for a day. When is it? Three weeks? Yeah. Well, I can probably do that. We could go up for the day. And there's a couple of new, brand new bookstores in Cincinnati I want to check out. That's what we need is more books. I know, but it's so fun to visit them. It is fun. I'm really heartened by how many new bookstores are opening up. Yeah. There's been a a new um, mobile bookstore that's opened up in Louisville, Foxing Books. There has been a horror bookstore open up here called Butcher Cabin Books. I wouldn't say I have my finger on the heartbeat of Cincinnati, but I mean, I do follow a lot of Cincinnati bookstagrammers, and there's at least two that I've heard of that brand new ones that are opening in the Cincinnati area. Plus the Cincy book bus is going to open up a storefront. Yeah. The bus depot. Cool. Cool, So I feel like books are blooming. Yeah, for sure. You know, we talk about me and how I do not bring the enthusiasm, but the person who does bring enthusiasm is Ellen, our guest this week, Ellen Hagen. When she did her reading at Carmichael's Bookstore, and we learned from talking with her that that she has a background in theater. And so like watching her perform, I mean, she brings the enthusiasm. So uh, hopefully, hopefully that will uh, translate in our episode with her because she's she's very passionate about her work and what she does and sharing poetry. And, and she was a great person to chat with. Let's talk to Ellen. We were pleased to hear Ellen Hagen, author of Don't Call Me a Hurricane, read from the story in verse during her visit to Carmichael's Bookstore here in Louisville, Kentucky. And we're so glad that she agreed to be on the show. Welcome, Ellen. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here with you all. Tell me where you are you're recording from tonight. Yes, I normally live in Washington Heights, New York City. So that is where I'm calling from. But you do have a little bit of background in Kentucky, correct? Yes, that is right. So I grew up in Bardstown, Kentucky. So it's about a small town between Louisville and Lexington, sort of central Kentucky. It is the bourbon capital of the world. All my formative years were in Bardstown, Kentucky. And so I always think of Kentucky as raising me. And my family's there. My my husband's family is all there. So we also have a house in the Highlands in Louisville that's right next to my in-laws that we bought during the pandemic. So it feels like 
it was a place where we could continue to keep our ties to Kentucky. We do a lot of work there. We still teach there. And I'm on the faculty at Spalding University in their MFA program. Uh, we wanted to make sure to keep those threads in Kentucky. I think Kentucky is very much a part of our artistic lives. So it feels good to, to be home there. You're totally not twangy. So at least you don't sound twangy to me, but I guess it's from living up north for a while. So a couple of things. I think sometimes I sound twangy. To my New York friends, they're like, eh, and it depends. <laughs> now, if I, if I let it loose a little bit, it can get a little more twangy. But okay. my mom is originally from New Jersey. So mm. I also grew up with her accent in the house. And gotcha. and then I my undergraduate degree is in theater. So we did a lot of vocal training and voice training. And so I think maybe that is part of it. But I, I, many people here would say, yeah, I can hear the twang. It comes out, <laughs> you know. So you are the director of poetry and theater departments at the Dream Yard Project, and you manage their international poetry exchange program. You've done lots of other things within the world of poetry, including teaching at the Kentucky Governor's School for the Arts. So how did your interest in and love of poetry begin? I love that question because I often point back to Kentucky and very specific writers in Kentucky. I went to the Governor's School for the Arts when I was 17 years old, and it really changed and shaped everything for me. I always tell every young person I meet in Kentucky, look up Governor's School for the Arts, apply, go, check it out. Because the Afro-Latin poets who were there, Kelly Norman Ellis and Crystal Wilkinson specifically, I think about them really shaping who I am as a writer. They told us to write what we knew. They told us to write about our memos and the cornbread. And if we, if we came from that, you know, I think they often said, if you don't call your grandma, grandma, if you call her abuela or mama or mima, call the things you know by their names. They were thinking about culture and traditions and how we write about home and how we write about our families. So at 17 years old, to to hear all of that and to be mentors say, you can do this, you can write about where you come from, you can complicate your past, you can write about your family, you can write about what's on your heart or what stays on your mind. That really, really shaped me. And so I knew at a very young age, I always, now I'm Kelly Norman Ellis's friend. I always say to her, I wanted to be you. I wanted to be working with young people. I wanted to be in the classroom. There was something really special about that bond that we created. And so my whole sort of life work and trajectory led me to arts organizations in New York City. So I moved right after my undergraduate degree, I moved to New York City. And there are two organizations that I'm very closely involved with, Community Word Project, which is a nonprofit arts and education program. And then where I currently work, the Dream Yard Project. And I've been there 20 years. And I started as a teaching artist in classrooms. So I was teaching in kindergarten through 12th grade, all over New York City, all over the boroughs. And so teaching poetry to young people was so much informing the work I was doing as an artist. We often tell our artists who who work in the classroom, you're an artist in residence. So you're there to show young people what it is to be an artist, but you're also there to be in dialogue and in conversation with the young people. So my work with schools, with high school students in particular, has been very informative to the work I do writing for middle grade and young adult. I think without that, I wouldn't be as connected. I wouldn't be as 
in the know of what, what's happening, what's on the hearts and minds of young people. I think the work I do absolutely feeds the work I do a, as a writer and, and as an artist. Well, can you give our listeners a kind of a brief synopsis of Don't Call Me a Hurricane? So Don't Call Me a Hurricane is a novel in verse about a group of young environmental activists who've lived through a hurricane on their small island home. They live in Long Beach Island, New Jersey. So it's the summer before senior year, and they've done several actions. They've they've survived that hurricane that happened five years ago. They're trying to protect an area called the Clam Cove Reserve, and it's an area of marshlands that is close to all of them in proximity, and it's it's in danger of being destroyed or developed. And so Eliza Marino is the main character, and she finds herself falling in love with a tourist who is part of that and is is holding on to some secrets about what he's doing on the island. So uh, when I tell young people what it's about, I always say it's about climate activists, it's about climate justice, but it's a young love story, but it's a, a love story for family and friends, and it's about a group of young people who are finding their friendship and finding ways to rise up together. So you just, you know, told us a few minutes ago that that your mother was from New Jersey and that you spent some of your childhood summers on the New Jersey shore. So how did those experiences inspire this story? Was it something that you always wanted to write about that place and you just finally decided now was the time? I've always wanted to write about Long Beach Island, New Jersey. And in the same way that I'm always thinking about the places that inform who I am. So I'm thinking about writing about New York City or Bardstown, Kentucky. So every summer, my mom, like I said, she was originally from New Jersey and she spent all of her summers going to Long Beach Island. They lived in, in a part of the island called Harvey Cedars. They had a home there. And so when I was growing up, you know, we lived in Kentucky, but we would drive the 800 miles every summer to Long Beach Island. So often we met my grandparents there, my cousins, my aunts and uncles. And so in my memory, it was the place where we were jumping waves and eating crab. And there was the family time and laughing and having salami sandwiches. There was that really sort of sweet time of all being together. And then as we got older, my friends ended up coming with, with me and we worked summer jobs there. I think I worked for, eight, I want to say seven or eight summers at the Sunglass Menagerie in <laughs> Beach Haven, New Jersey, selling sunglasses. And often, even though we were tourists, we were not tourists from the tri-state area. So we were we were these sort of country kids coming from all the way from Kentucky. Our relationship to the locals even was different than the people who were coming from Philadelphia or coming from New York City. I don't know if it felt like more of a bond because we weren't from those other cities. We were from this place that also felt misunderstood. So it felt like Long Beach Island could feel misunderstood. Kentucky could feel misunderstood, Bardstown. And so there was sort of a, a kinship or a bond that we formed with a lot of the locals that we met. And I remember thinking about the friction between people who were living year round on that island and the people who were just visiting. Of course, you could see that friction in all different places in, in Bardstown because it was the bourbon capital of the world. People were coming in, you know, they weren't locals. They were people who were just dipping in. So I was always curious and thinking about what is that relationship? What does it look like? How do these groups of people survive together? And so I, I think when I went to write the book, I, I kept wanting to figure out what that relationship is and put that on the page. 
it reminds me you were saying that and I was thinking about the Kentucky Derby, which if you live in Louisville, you know, sometimes I think there's this love-hate relationship, right? Because the the Derby brings in a lot of tourists and brings in a lot of money and it's great for our city, but it's also, you know, brings in a lot of tourists and there's, right. it's just busy and crowded. And so I think there is that tension there when you have locals versus tourists and it's, and it's not necessarily a, a battle, but it can sort of feel uncomfortable. Yeah. And I think the book just wanted to, I, I use this word a lot, problematize what was happening. So it's not exactly what you said. It's just figuring out how do those groups live in tandem and what does it look like and where, where does the friction come up or where does where do the problems arise and how do they work through it? For me, even on a bigger scale, I think sometimes about places like, well, we have interviewed a few travel writers and at least one of them has talked about sort of her internal struggle with being a travel writer and obviously wanting to travel, but also some of the pressure of her traveling to some of these places puts on the ecosystem of the place she's traveling. So for instance, like Iceland, I know they were having so many visitors to this unique place, but that those same visitors could destroy the habitat that they're coming to see. And you can feel it so strongly in your book, this tension, profound tension between tourism and the money and jobs it brings versus the sustainability of the tourism. Yes. Everything you're saying is part of the reason that I even started to write about climate change is I was sort of having my own friction as, as I'm 43 years old as an adult and figuring out, okay, what is my relationship to the planet? And just what you're saying is, is, is me traveling? Is it good for the, for the planet? Is it, how many flights am I taking? What about, how am I traveling somewhere? What does my footprint look like? And how do I navigate my own anxiety? You know, as, as a, as a writer, you're trying to sort of research and figure out what is my role in the world? If I'm struggling with this as an adult, what are young people thinking? Are they thinking about it? Are they struggling with it? sort of giving them some guides and knowing that I'm looking for the same guides as an adult. I'm figuring out how do I talk about climate change? How do I talk to my children? How do I talk to my students? How do I bring up these conversations too? So that I don't feel like I I don't have the language or and knowing that I can also be vulnerable and say, hey, I don't know everything. So how do I figure out these places I want to visit? Or is it the best place to visit right now? Or is there something I can do that would serve it better or serve the, the planet in a better way? You know, in the book, there's many passages about Eliza's flashbacks to the hurricane that her family survived. I mean, it kind of ruined her mother's business and their and their home made me think of Hurricane Sandy. And so I'm wondering, did you have any personal experience with Hurricane Sandy? So my family had a home on Long Beach Island when Hurricane Sandy was there and they did get damage. It wasn't nearly the damage that that other homes got or or businesses, but they did have a place on Long Beach Island. And I was in New York City at the time. So I, I was thinking a lot about the island of, of Manhattan and what lower Manhattan was going through or what the Jersey Shore, the coast as a whole. I was sort of watching that and thinking about livelihoods on the coast and and people that I knew who had grown up their whole lives or had businesses there. My family ended up going back several times as the recovery happened. So we were on the the shore 
several weeks, you know, and then, and then summers passed after Sandy. And so to just watch the island figure out what are we doing to survive? And is this life on a barrier island? Is it sustainable? What does it look like in the long run? What are the things we are going to have to do to sustain the lives that are supported here and the lives that live there? So I, I was absolutely watching it firsthand, watching them build back and thinking about how much is too much building back? Where do you say, you know what, this this might not be a place that we can continue to develop. Where is that push and pull from what is too much development? Where's a, a part where we might need to give back to the land? I kept thinking about that. And, and partly living through Sandy made me think more about what does resiliency look like and what does a, a resilient city look like or what does a resilient island community look like? When we were teenagers, I think you're a little bit younger than Carrie and I, but Earth Day was this really, this holiday that came around once a year. I say holiday sort of in air quotes and people made posters and maybe you'd have something at your school. It brought awareness to our earth, but like I said, it only came around once a year and then you kind of forgot about it. But I feel like young people now are thinking about the earth and its health a lot of the time. In some ways, they're the leaders on the topic because it's their future we're talking about. You know, I think about Greta Thornburg and and in this book, the teens are also the leaders and they form an activist group called Climate Justice Seekers. You've been writing for young people for a while. Have you seen a more nuanced or different climate change topics coming to the forefront with your discussions with them? Yes, I think the young people are so I, I'll talk briefly about the International Poetry Exchange, and that started through Ambassador Caroline Kennedy when she was ambassador in Japan. So we have students in the U.S., Japan, Korea, the Philippines, and we we are about to add two schools in Australia. We meet every six weeks or so. We share poetry. We do cultural exchange. We talk about traditions and families and stories. And often I, I'll ask the students what are the topics we want to talk about? What are the issues? And often they talk about race. They talk about class. They talk about sexism. And they also, they can talk about all of these big issues. So where does racism and classism and sexism, where does it fall in with climate change? Where, When we're looking at the climate, what, what communities are most affected? How do we talk about it in, in a very personal way? The students continue to, to show me how to be talking about things in very complicated and nuanced ways. So the students in this international exchange have continued to say, let's talk about, about climate change. Let's talk about global warming. Let's think about it in a more complex way. Our, our students in the Bronx, that's where we are in the U.S. and New York, they're in, in the Bronx. And so what is affecting specifically them in certain parts of the Bronx? Uh, there's two organizations that I'm I'm thinking about as well. The Climate Museum is a museum that we've partnered with at Dreamyard, and they're often thinking about building connections through art. So they have art installations and interdisciplinary exhibitions and and panels, performances. They are using the art to to talk about climate change and using the art to talk about their identity and and where they come from. So I, again, it feels like the students are making it very personal, and that's what I've I've seen from them. I, I'm thinking about one other situation. 
in Washington Heights. That's where my children go to school. And the high schoolers at the Washington Heights Expeditionary Learning School, expeditionary learning means you are in field work and you're on the ground doing this work. The high school students have founded the Clean Air Green Corridor. And it's a project that is trying to sort of figure out how to make this corridor, the 182nd Street, into a community hub that provides equitable access to green space. Uh, It's without displacing community members, but it's figuring out how do we green our community space. And they are specifically thinking about how do we address climate justice in in a critical way that's youth-led? It's predominantly Black and Brown youth. They're doing community organizing to create a climate and racial justice initiative in their neighborhood. So that's sort of hands on the ground. These young people are saying, we want to have this, this clean air corridor. It, it's, a, it's a corridor that connects a ton of different schools to elementary, middle, high schools. It's sort of a green way. They're trying to create a green way in New York City. So thinking about these young people are mobilizing in a way that Earth Day was beautiful and it was great, but what happened after? And I think some of of these initiatives, they are serious and they're political too. So they're smart, they're savvy, they know how to leverage all of their skills. I I would also say they know how to leverage it through Instagram, through TikTok. Mm -hmm. They're doing it on social (laughs) media. So I, I feel like I'm watching them often say, okay, they're not really waiting. The time is now. They're looking at what's happening in Eastern Kentucky, in Pakistan, in in Puerto Rico. What are these global things that are happening and how do they mobilize as quickly as they can? I I just feel like there's a lot of movement. They're impatient. They're like, let's go. We want to do what we can while we can. I think that's what I've, I've been watching a lot with the young people. Well, one of the things I loved about your book is at the very end, you have an index, I don't know, or a list of some different organizations that readers can go to to learn more about climate change activist groups, more books to read if they want to read about the subject, and also writers and youth activists to learn more about. So I like the way that if someone is reading the book and they think, oh, I'd like to do something like that, or I'd like to get more involved. You've given them concrete ways or concrete subjects that they can go and look up. Yeah, we did this first when I I, I wrote Watch Us Rise with Renee Watson, and it was about feminism. And our, our editor, Sarah Shumway Liu, said, once a young person or, or an older person, any age, reads this book, where do you go from here? Where do you go? Oh, I, I'm really interested in this subject. Where is my starting Google search? Or where is my, how do I get connected to other young people who are doing this work or other writers who are, are interested in this? When I think about my work, what feels most important to me above everything is community. I, I think deeply about how do we create community? How do we engage community? I I always think about community as a verb. So how hard can we community? What are the things we can do to find the people who are interested in doing what we're doing? How do we find our people and how do we engage in, in the larger world? So I think hopefully once people read, you know, don't call me a hurricane, they want to get engaged or they're interested in, okay, what's next now? Or what other books do I want to read after this? What's my climate justice reading list? You're a poet. So obviously that is why it's in verse, but what is it about writing 
a story in verse that makes it different than writing a story in prose? Yeah, I think poetry can hold such emotion and heart. I think for young people, they are searching for how to get their emotions on the page. That's how I came to poetry. I really, at 13, 14 years old, I was journaling, but I was really figuring out, I was reading, I was, my classes were exposing me to all these different poets. And I thought, ah, oh, there's something about the way this sparse language looks on the page. You know, poems are language distilled. So when I think about the economy of language, I'm thinking about the most powerful and potent words and how they look and sound on the page. So I love the the layout of a poem. I love the design of a poem on the page. And I love that each poem takes on a different shape or takes on a different form. It feels like lots of entry points for a novel in verse. And I also, I often tell this story that I was not sure about novels in verse. I read The Poet X by Elizabeth Acevedo and I said, oh my gosh, mm -hmm. okay, I see how this works. I have only read maybe a, a couple of books that kind of had this format. And then I started to read as much as I could for novels in verse. I, I was very engaged in it. And so I love that idea that poems can be in conversation, that they can be telling a story or they can sit on their own. And that there's so many ways early readers or readers who are, are struggling or readers who are overwhelmed by looking at paragraphs or a page that the words are margin to margin. It feels like a breath or you can take a breath with each poem doesn't feel so, uh oh, I, I have to read all these words. I can take my time and there's some space and there's some some breath in each page. That's what it felt like to me when I was writing it. So I, I love that the emotion the sparseness on the page, and that the poems can be in conversation. You refer to the fact that, you know, the poems that make up this story in this book, you know, are different shapes. Some are short, some are long, some have stanzas and some don't. How did you decide what the structure of each poem for each page was going to be? Yeah, so I, I think... When I'm doing now, this is the, the second novel in verse that I've written. I started to really think deeply about a timeline of, of okay, here's how much time is going to happen in the book. So I need my poems to have movement. It's not a, a collection of poems. It's a story. So, And I have to keep reminding my, myself of that. I want to write these poems that are just mood or are just scenery that are that are kind of taking us into... Uh, maybe poems about the ocean or poems about uh, about trauma or poems about anxiety, poems about surfing, love. How do I get them to be in conversation? And so there were poems that felt like scene setting. And then there were poems, my editor says this a lot in my notes, uh, we need more mood here or, or where does mood show up? So sometimes my poems feel like, uh-oh, this poem is too long. It's five pages long. I'm trying to tell a story here. Let me condense the language a little more. Let me cut a little out. I didn't need all my ands or twos. or So I'm also in the editing process, sometimes I'm adding, but often for me, I'm taking things away because I've overwritten it or I've written it to the, to the point of, wait a minute, if my hardcore poet friends were reading this, would they say, uh, where's your poetic language? Where's your, where's your figurative language? So figuring out how to infuse both of those things and that sometimes the poem just sits on its own, but sometimes it's talking to the other poems. 
you know, I often think about writing and artistry in general. I'm learning all the time. I don't feel like there's any point where I'm like, okay, got it. Check. I know how to do this now. I'm in the middle of revisions for a, another novel in verse. It's always surprising to me how much I'm learning as I go and how much I'm, okay, let's rethink this and, and focus on creativity and focus on play and experimentation. So I'm hopeful that in each book, it feels like there's a freshness to the poems too. And that I don't feel like I want to be hemmed in by it has to be this way, that it can have some freedom and looseness on the page too. You know, some of my favorite books, I love, I love Out of the Dust. I mean, that's, that's an old one, a story told in poetry. Do you think that sometimes what the story is, it sort of helps you figure out the pacing and, and the size just because of the story itself? Absolutely. I think I started writing Hurricane from the hurricane. When I was writing from the flashbacks, they only came to me in poems. It felt like those sections were writing themselves. I, I felt excited by it. I felt energized, excited in meaning that the poems were doing service to the story. It felt like, okay, mm. they wanted to tell themselves. It felt like there was movement and fear and energy behind those poems. And they could only be told in poems. It didn't feel like there was any other way. Just thinking about creativity right now. And I'm working on a story that doesn't feel like it needs to be written in poems at all. It had, I have a lot to say. It, it feels very expansive in a different way. Hopefully still has that same heart of the story, but it's that's not the form that it needs. So yes, sometimes the story informs the form and sometimes... You're, you're figuring out how do I want to tell this story? I think that's where you you go, okay, how, how do I figure out what ways this story is going to come to me and how am I going to take it on? And so that's where the, the experimentation and play comes in where I don't want to follow one same thing. I want to be kind of moved by how, how does this story want to arrive in the world a little bit? So- you, you mentioned your theater background, you know, reading it and also listening to you read from it. The work has a, a performative aspect to it. So how do you think that drama has affected your writing style? I was working this morning on what felt like a monologue, part of this, this larger story. And I started to read it out loud to myself. And I thought, oh, this character, does she sound real right now? Is she? So something about me reading it out loud or performing it, I was alone in my apartment, so I could just really perform it. So I grew up doing theater from middle school into high school, did all the school plays, my undergraduate degree, my bachelor of fine arts is in theater. I really moved to New York City to to get my MFA in writing, but I really moved to take my solo show to here. I was working on a solo show and I was working on in off 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 Broadway theaters and doing a lot of performance poetry, but also writing scripts. So writing short plays and writing these these solo shows. I did a couple of solo shows when I was in New York. When I'm thinking about who I am as an artist, I'm hopefully it's not just one thing or the other that, that I'm writing right now, but who knows, maybe I will be on stage in something else. Or my husband is a filmmaker. And I often think about what does our collaboration look like? Do we want to be writing scripts? Are we, do we want to put something on its feet? The work I do at Dream Yard is with dancers and theater artists and visual artists. And so I think a lot about what other art forms are in 
are just informing me as a person and are informing me as when I get back to the page. So absolutely that training in theater helps me when I get on stage that the training of theater helps me feel confident, more confident on the stage, but it all feels like it's in conversation. All of those art forms feel like they're, they're constantly in conversation with each other. While I was reading this story and, and about climate change on this, you know, barrier island off of New Jersey, it made me think of the recent historic flooding here in Kentucky, in eastern Kentucky, and climate change is happening everywhere. But a lot of the descriptions you have made me think about the flooding in Kentucky. So have you been getting feedback from readers about how climate change is affecting them where they live? Well, so I I have started to be in conversation with young people about the book. I had a student whose family is from Bangladesh who said, I I think a lot about rising waters and how floods transform a city. I had some former students who have, have been in Eastern Kentucky who work with Apple Shop and have been you know, working to save the archives of Apple Shop. This is a, a you know, a, a colleague of mine, but they've been talking about how do we talk to young people about preserving these artifacts, preserving this, this history, and how do we talk to them about the landscape? And how do we talk to them about how a flood or how a natural disaster changes the landscape? So that's what the young people I've been in conversation with are often talking about how will climate change affect where we live and affect where we, in, in 10, 20 years, what will the landscape look like? My daughter has been reading. She's almost 12. She read Don't Call Me a Hurricane and she kept every night. It was a conversation about will Long Beach Island still be there? And what can we do to, to make sure it's still there? So a, a lot of the students that I'm talking to are thinking about home and thinking about where they're going to make their home and what does that look like? What is the work they need to do? to make sure those homes are are livable, are sustainable, and what does the, the future look like for them? Those are all deep thoughts, all deep thoughts for us oh, to try to figure out as a community and individually. It's like, it's sometimes hard to wrap your mind around all of it. Yeah. But um, I really appreciated your book. And I hope that, you know, lots of young people will read it and they can get some ideas from it as well on their own personal journeys. I think now is a good time to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about what we're reading. We are back with Ellen Hagen, author of Don't Call Me a Hurricane, and also Carrie. I can't forget Carrie. Carrie's here too. And we're going to talk about what we are reading so... Carrie, what's on your nightstand? Well, this is a book that I finished a little while ago. It's called Rivers of London by Ben Aronovich. I listened to it on audiobook. And it actually, it also goes by, I guess, a different name in in England. I've seen both titles. What I read was Rivers of London, but I've also seen it called Midnight Riot. But I listened to it and it was so worth it just to hear Kobna Holbrook-Smith read this book. So I know people say that Idris Elba has a sexy voice, but it pales in comparison to Kobna Holbrook Smith. So if you want a delicious voice, hmm. listen to, and, and I think there's like 10 books in the series. He's read all of them. Rivers of London is the first in this 
big, huge series of books. And it's about Constable Peter Grant, who is due at the start of the story to be assigned to the most boring policing position ever in London. But fortunately, Peter gets some important information about a recent murder from a ghost. And getting that information brings Peter to the attention of Detective Chief Inspector Thomas Nightingale, who becomes Peter's mentor. He begins to teach him magic and sort of help Peter discover that there's this whole other world that impacts London policing. Peter has to try to remedy, there's a fight of sorts going on between the god and goddess of the River Thames. And he's also trying to solve the murder that the ghost gave him info about. And that involves something that's uncanny that keeps sort of reasserting itself into the world of of the living. So it was a great story, totally sucked me in, you know, fantastical, and like I said, awesome audiobook narrator. So if if that's your jam, I highly recommend Rivers of London by Ben Aronovich. About how long is this book? This um, uh, well, it wasn't too long because you know that I, I try not to read like <laughs> really, really, really long. I want to say it was like nine hours. Okay, because oh, I have a thing yeah. too about not doing long ones, mainly because our library Libby app, it'll let you check one out for two weeks. And I have finally figured out that I can't really finish one that's over 10 hours in two weeks. Mm, yeah. And there's nothing that is more frustrating than not quite getting through it. And then someone else is waiting for it and they take it back automatically and yeah. then you're stuck. <laughs> yeah. So are you planning on listening to all 10? Well, I mean, you know, not right away. But eventually, if I've got a long drive coming up or if if I know I'm going to be flying and going to be in airports all day, this would be a great book to listen to because his voice is so awesome and soothing. I mean, you know, have a glass of wine, listen to his voice. It'll take all your stress away. So, well, Ellen, what have you been reading lately? So this is all good information. I, I, I feel like I'm, I'm taking notes of like, okay, what do I need to read now? So try, I'll try to make this quick because I have a few, I have a few recommendations. I have been trying the last few years to read 50 books uh, a year. I, and I read, I read everything. I read comic books. I read graphic novels. I read uh, memoir, fiction, a uh, young adult. So I'm going to think about what I've read this year. And here's my three. I'll do a very quick three. Neruda on the Park by Clavis Natera. I just finished that one. It is set in a fictional uptown neighborhood, sort of like Washington Heights, New York City. It's a mother-daughter tale. Each chapter goes back and forth between the mother and the daughter. There's a love story. It's mystery. It feels like intrigue. It was a page turner, absolutely for me. And it also talked a lot about, about gentrification and, and a changing neighborhood, especially the one I'm living in. So it, it made me think a lot about my relationship to the neighborhood, and just reading stories that are centered here. Okay, two more. Vinyl Moon by Mahogany <laughs> L. Brown is a young adult book. Mahogany is also a, a friend, a fellow poet who's, who does so many amazing things around New York City and beyond. But this book is centered in Brooklyn. It follows a group of, of teenagers, high school in Brooklyn. It's a hybrid novel. So it feels like it's sort of inverse, but then there's some chapters that feel more traditional. And there's a lot of, of sort of poems within the book. It is um, a, a young person who is dealing with coming out of an abusive relationship. So there's a lot of 
just the community building around this, this young student who's moved to Brooklyn. But that was one of my favorites from the year. And the last one I wanted to share was, I came all this way to meet you by Jamie Attenberg. She founded 1000 Words of Summer. If you're someone out there who is interested in writing or wants to get your writing up and out in the world, she does this every summer for 14 days and then does mini write a thousand words of, of, you know, sometimes of the fall or the winter. And it's, you just write a thousand words a day, but you're part of this larger community. And this is her memoir. I loved it. I thought it was such a good writer's memoir, especially if you're thinking about how do I get my words out there? How do I make it? It sort of follows her path as a fiction writer. I highly recommend all three of those books. That's awesome. I have I haven't heard of any of these, so that's awesome. <laughs> good, good. I love this. <laughs> well, Amy, what have you been working on over there? Today I'm going to bring you a book that if you are a reader who enjoys a good coming of age story, I highly recommend a book that I finished recently called Mary Jane by Jessica Anya Blau. And it's set in the 1970s and our main character Mary Jane is a teenager in upper middle class Baltimore in the suburbs. And her neighbors, a block or two over, the Cones, hire Mary Jane to be a nanny for their five-year-old daughter. Mr. Cone is a psychiatrist whose specialty is treating people with addictions. What Mary Jane realizes from the very beginning is that her family and the Cones are very different. In her family, the marital roles are very traditional. Her mother takes very seriously her role as a wife and a mother for providing well-thought-out meals, for ironing everybody's clothes for the family. They say grace at every meal, and they pray for President Gerald Ford, whose picture hangs on the dining room wall. And her mother has a very particular ideas about the way women should dress and act. And while she doesn't doubt that her parents care for her, Mary Jane doesn't remember the last time her parents hugged her. The Cones, on the other hand, are much more progressive. Mrs. Cone often doesn't wear a bra. She doesn't really cook for the family and they get takeout most nights. And their parenting style is much more hands-off but full of affection. They're always hugging and kissing each other and soon Mary Jane. But the Cones have a secret they want Mary Jane to keep. And that is that a famous couple is coming to stay with the Cones for the summer. Jimmy is a famous rock star, and his wife Sheba is the it girl of Hollywood and a well-known actress. And Jimmy has a drug problem, and he's come to work all summer with Dr. Cohen for treatment. But they, because of the paparazzi, they don't want anybody to know that they're there. So Mary Jane's job is to take care of the Cohen's little girl while Mrs. Cohen entertains Sheba. And so begins Mary Jane's summer, and she begins creating home-cooked meals for the Cones, Jimmy, and Sheba that they all rave about. And she has Sheba take her clothes shopping, and she buys things that her mother would never approve of, and she learns about sexuality and pot. And her parents treat her like a child while the Cones treat her as an adult. Mary Jane is also learning that the way your own family does things is not necessarily the way every family does things. I was in college before I had that realization. So, <laughs> so in the end, she, she understands that she can be something different than what is presented to her. And she defines for herself what it means to be family. So for people who are fans of the Taylor Jenkins Reid book, Daisy Jones and the Six, this book will 
give you some of those same feels. There's the 70s rock stars and the 70s culture, but the structure is much different and because this is from a 14-year-old's point of view as opposed to a rock star's. I thoroughly enjoyed this on audiobook. It is narrated by Caitlin Kinnewin. Hopefully I said her name right. And she is an absolute master of making all these characters distinct and she captures Mary Jane's voice so well. It is an Audi Award nominee And this book was one of my favorite books in 2022 so far. And I gave it five stars. I just can't keep up with you on Goodreads. Like, I I didn't even see this on your Goodreads. uh, I'm blocking you. Didn't you know that? (laughs) (laughs) I don't want you to know what I'm reading, Carrie. Well, these, gosh, chock full. What did we have? Three, four, five, five awesome book suggestions for people. We are going to take another quick break. And when we come back, we're going to put Ellen in the hot seat and ask her her three in the third degree. We are back with Ellen Hagen, author of Don't Call Me a Hurricane. Ellen, are you ready for your probing questions? Yes, I am ready. (laughs) Okay. So you now live in New York City. What is something that you miss about Kentucky that your current city just can't replicate? Yes. So I I feel like this might be a controversial answer, but I feel like Uh it's food. I mean, I would would say this, food because, and here's the reason, New York has amazing food. I, I will give it that, but all kinds of food from all around the world. But there's certain things that I feel like New York just cannot replicate. So I'm going to say fried chicken, okay? Because I, mm-hmm. and my my husband yeah. would say the same thing. He's like, "Look, my search for the best fried chicken, it's not it's not here." So I would give a shout out to Indies yeah. in Louisville. I also would say Lee's <laughs> Lee's famous recipe, delicious. Um, so and then I want to say even barbecue. When I think about good barbecue, I, I, New York can do it, but I feel like even Feast in Louisville is a place that I that I think of as ooh, I got to get home. And then my mom, who learned my mom, you know, is is not from Kentucky, but she learned how to make cornbread from my memo, from my dad's mom. And so my mom mm. actually can do a lot of Southern cooking and her cornbread is, who, which is my memo's cornbread, is something you just can't, can't get it here. So I think the family, family cooking is, is what I miss most. For yeah. sure. My grandmother on my, my dad's mom made fried chicken and uh. it was just, astounding. I, I've never had fried chicken like it. And I don't know if it was because of eating it like in her backyard, right next to the garden. You know what I mean? I don't know if yeah. it was sort of the ambiance of the place made the chicken better, but I mean, I, I just give one more little food moment. Book before this, Reckless Glorious Girl, is it's set in Bardstown, and it is all about food and Kentucky. And there's a scene where, when I grew up in Bardstown, the the women who were cooking in the lunchroom, they were really cooking. It wasn't packaged food; it was yeast rolls and cabbage casserole and Salisbury steak and. It was real food. We would race each other to get to the lunchroom. And I have friends who live in Southern, different places from the South. And they were like, yeah, my, the people were cooking in our kitchen too. So I miss that. Mm-hmm. I feel like it's, it's not the same. And maybe that's not the same as it was 20 years ago or 30 years ago either. Um, but I do. I miss that a lot. Okay. So question number two, you have kept journals since you were a middle schooler. If you could go back and give your middle school self 
advice or words of wisdom, what would you tell her? Yeah. So it felt like sixth grade was when everybody was making fun of you for something. Everybody was getting made fun of for something. The nose that is on my face now was on my face when I was 12 years old, 11, 12 years old, (laughs) which is quite quite a large nose. Okay. A couple kids called me big nose my entire sixth grade year. And my mom was like, oh, you have a strong Middle Eastern nose. That's your grandfather's nose. You should be proud of it. But also it's big, like, you know, kind of like owning it, but also telling me I needed to, to honor honor it and love it. And I remember being like, I was embarrassed to sit next to people I had crushes on because I thought they would just see my nose. And so I carried that with me for a long time, too long. And so by the time I was grown up enough to realize, oh, it's it's my ancestry. It's my, my Assyrian grandfather. It's from Aziz Bazaz. And when I finally learned to love it and to love who I was and where I come from, I felt like I wasted a lot of time not loving it or being embarrassed by it. So I would tell that middle school self, own your big nose. Like be, be like, yeah, it helps me smell better. It's awesome. I feel great about it. Like, how, like just really honor it, love it, write poems about it, just flaunt it. I, that's what I would have said. You know, flaunt those parts of yourself that maybe that make you stand out or that make you different. Uh, love it. Own it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I wish I could go back and just, you know, I wouldn't want to give my middle school self all of my 40s mentality because it would be too much. You know what I mean? Right. Like it would overwhelm her. But I would just like right. to take, you know, even like 5% of it and just yeah. do a little transfusion so that she would exactly. be like, I don't need to take crap off people. <laughs> you know, right. like right. I'm awesome and they can suck it. So <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> All right. Last question. So what is the song that you consider your anthem? The song that either, you know, pumps you up or that you carry throughout your life and you love it no matter what? Yes. Keeping on the theme that we just talked about, it would be Simply the Best by Tina Turner. It is the greatest (gasps) anthem song. It's what I sing. If I sing karaoke, I can't really sing it. I mean, it's not like in my range. But I don't care. I, I just embody. I, I just saw Tina on Broadway, the Tina Turner musical on Broadway. And also there was there's something about, it's not just the song. It's the fact that Tina Turner also recreated, you know, who she was, her career, that she did it into her 50s and 60s and, and beyond. Not not that she has stopped, but I like that idea of, I'm just 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 try let's just do the work as long as we can as hard as we can and use that as our as our background music so yeah simply the best tina turner well ellen it has been fantastic chatting with you about your book again it's called don't call me a hurricane thanks so much for taking time out of your evening up in new york city and and chatting with us we really appreciate it thank you all so much it has been such a joyful evening i really appreciate being in conversation with you all Thank you. You can find more information about Ellen Hagen on social media at Ellen Hagen or her website, www.ellenhagen.com. For show notes for any episode, go to our website at www.perksofbeingabooklover.com. We're also on Instagram at Perks of Being a Book Lover Pod and on Facebook at Perks of Being a Book Lover. If you like what we're doing with the show, tell a friend. Word of mouth is one of the best ways to help people find us. Or leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform like Apple Podcasts and Spotify. 
Finally, a huge thank you to Forward Radio 106.5 FM, a grassroots community radio station in Louisville, Kentucky. You can find our show there, live or in archives, at forwardradio.org.